Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Healthcare in Tennessee, guns in Missouri, tax cuts in Kansas. Professor Jonathan Metzel of Vanderbilt University focuses on those three areas in his book, Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Using compelling data and focus groups, Metzl shows how white people are willing to die rather than be connected to or finance policies they believe are giving resources to people they view as undeserving. Find out more about this important book right now. Jonathan Metzl, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's great to be here. Okay, I've been raving about your book for months now. And it is really an important book. The name of the book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And you start off the book by telling the story of Trevor. Talk about Trevor. Sure. Well, basically, the the, the impetus for the book came from a series of focus groups that uh, some colleagues of mine and I were doing in, in kind of rural Tennessee, where we were talking to medically ill poor um, white and black Americans about the Affordable Care Act. And we just found, you know, some very dramatic stories, which I recount in the book. But I think probably one of the most powerful stories was one of a man named Trevor, who, who I call Trevor in, in the book, um, who was suffering from liver failure and a bunch of other chronic conditions. And he really would have benefited from, this was in the year 2011 at the time, what the, what the Affordable Care Act potentially was offering, which was increased access to physicians, financial help because he was you know in the, facing medical bankruptcy and w- w- this was in a focus group and and I basically asked um you know what's your feeling about the affordable care act and he told me I realized that I realized that something like the Affordable Care Act might be beneficial for me, but I have to tell you there's no way I'm supporting or signing up for a program that, as he put it, benefits um, Mexicans and welfare queens. That was a quote I heard a lot. And basically the, the idea was that even if this program might benefit me, I'm not going to support a program that might also benefit, by his estimation, kind of undeserving immigrants or minorities. And the reason that was important was because, again, it was a refrain that I heard quite often that, um, you know, we don't we don't want to be part of a program that might not just benefit us, but other people. And in this case, you know, here's a guy who's he's on death doorstep, literally, literally on death doorstep. And so part of the jumping off point of the book is how powerful is this idea about kind of what it means to be white in America and this idea that basically to be to be um, white means to have to block the advances of other groups. And in, in a way, the, you know, the book's called Dying of Whiteness because of stories like this where people literally literally traded their lives uh, rather than sign up for social programs or support programs that they felt like might go to benefit other people who were undeserving. To the point of the focus groups, when you were talking to either all white groups or all black groups, you had a colleague who you worked with, an African-American man, who he talked to the all black groups and you talked to the all white groups for obvious reasons. But talk about that. Well, we just wanted people to feel comfortable. Obviously, race is a, right. a marker, a powerful marker in, in the South where we're doing our, doing our research. And so we really wanted to get people's honest opinions um, about, I mean, obviously, I'm a race scholar. So is my colleague, Derek, Derek Griffith. And so part of the issue was we just, we wanted to get the right. real 
stuff, the real the real responses. And so I think part of part of the issue was that, but also, you know, because race is such an important dividing line in places like Tennessee, where we were doing the research, we really wanted to see, we really wanted to compare, you know, we asked every group the same questions. And, and the focus groups were pretty interesting about the first 15 or 20 minutes of the groups were just general questions, you know, how do you define health? What do you do to 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 maintain your health. And it's interesting that um, race really wasn't a factor in those early questions. So everybody would joke around and say stuff like, you know, I try to keep my weight down, but then I walk by, you know, McDonald's and the McRib is on sale for 99 cents. And everybody would kind of laugh and everybody, you know, I would, we would all laugh. I mean, I personally love the McRib also. We're not talking um, about that. And now, so but go on. <laughs> I mean, 99 cents, can't beat it. Um, but anyway, you know, so for the first 20 minutes or so, when we would ask general questions about health, there really were no race race dividers, right? And and we're also socioeconomic class, but we can talk about that later. But then about 20 minutes into each group, we would ask this question, so who benefits from healthcare reform? And it's important to note that we were doing these interviews in 2011, 2012, this was a time when Tennessee was really debating: um, should they, should we expand Medicaid? Should we create? Um, should we basically accept the Affordable Care Act or reject it? That was something very much on people's minds. And what we found was when we asked this question: who benefits from health care reform? The almost to a person, the African American men would say things like, "Everybody does. You know, we are as a society benefit if more people are insured, not just black people. That's what they would say, um, but really everybody." And so this idea that we would get from the African-American focus groups was, was a, you know, it's kind of the attitude you want people to have if you're going to create a national healthcare system, which is if we get the most people in the system, it benefits the most people. When we would ask the, the groups of particularly lower income white Americans, we got a, a, a range of opinions, but one that seemed to dominate was, as I mentioned, this idea that basically I don't want to be part of a system where the, you know, benefits that could be going to me are going to, as they put it, undeserving immigrants or minorities, which tapped into a lot of these things about, you know, building a wall and keeping people out. And so really, I, I think that the profound racial difference we found in these groups was really that one group really had a very a very broad idea about mm -hmm. a, a network, a shared risk, all the things you would want people to have when you're creating health insurance. And and for for the white Americans we spoke to, uh, and, I, you know, of course, I'm a white American myself, but I, uh, in these groups, you know, people people would basically, um, it was this sense of kind of limited resources and privileges are being taken away from me. And and that was important both because it, it spoke to an ideology which was just counter to the idea of creating a national health care system. It was important because it tapped into historical tensions about other times to democratize healthcare with, you know, Johnson and Truman administrations, um, you know, desegregation, things like that. But it was also important because the ideology of blocking the Affordable Care Act was one that we didn't just hear in the groups. That was how the entire state voted. We elected politicians mm -hmm. who decided not to expand Medicaid, not to create competitive insurance marketplaces. And so in a way, that ideology, we felt that from a political standpoint, was, was quite dominant in terms of how the state ultimately voted and decided what to do. Mm -hmm. Well, on that larger point of, you know, the the white focus groups looking at the idea of their resources going to, quote unquote, undeserving people. But you also make a point of 
in, in here, it's on page 187, where you're talking about President Trump and his hammering away at the at the Affordable Care Act, at Obamacare. And you write, Trump essentially asked lower income white people to choose less coverage and more suffering over a system that linked them to Mexicans, welfare queens and to healthier, longer lives. And it was that that word, that verb linked them. The idea of being connected to these people was a was a bridge too far. Right. I mean, it, it's, it was one of the more powerful points and something I couldn't have anticipated before doing these focus groups. But basically the idea, I mean, think about it. If you are, and, you know, I'm, I'm not, I hope people see this, I'm not trying to totally slam all the people I interviewed. I feel like there were remarkable stories of bravery, just about what it means to stay alive in a part of the country where there's no social safety net. But but I will say that this idea came came, came up again and again, which was this kind of particular form of white identity is what I'm holding on to. It's kind of keeping me alive. But what if I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day and I, as people would tell me, I, I live a, an unhealthy diet, things like that. And I'm in a network where my good health is dependent on a healthy African-American person or a Latino person who maybe jogs every day and <laughs> doesn't smoke, you know, in a way there's this sense of dependence of being in a, in a broader social network where my actions are related to other people's actions who it, it, it frightens me to be dependent on. And so there mm-hmm. was all, there's all this underlying tension about, about what it meant to be in a really in a, I mean, a, a, a healthcare system is a web, right? People are connected and, and you're dependent on a certain number of people being healthy, you know, mm-hmm. if one guy, if one person costs ten dollars for just a checkup, and one person costs ten thousand dollars because they need a a, a a kidney transplant, it balances out, right? But so, in a way, your actions are connected to the actions of other people, and I think that that anxiety, um, there was an underlying anxiety about what does it mean to be dependent on people who who. Um, at least my formulation of whiteness tells me I'm I'm superior to. Mm-hmm. In the Democratic Party, you know, there's this big debate that's going on about healthcare and and Medicare for all. And you've got candidates who are for Medicare for all, and then there's folks who have Medicare for all who want it, and then others who want to tinker with the Affordable Care Act. And you had a very interesting warning that you say, not a warning, but just sort of a a sign for people to pay attention to both early in the book and then later on in the book, where you write, I talk to white men like Trevor, who vigorously resent government intrusion into their lives and fear that their tax dollars will go toward lazy minorities, even as they themselves suffer the consequence of restricted access to health care. These types of attitudes complicate attempts to sell health care reform in rural America and might doom progressive calls for Medicare for all. The warning in that is, folks, this isn't just a conversation about health care. And this just isn't a conversation about money. This is a conversation about identity and for for whom the very people who a lot of Democrats say the party needs to win over in 2020, those are the same people who are very resistant to the idea of Medicare for all, from your argument, a system that would connect them to people they view as undeserving. And after four years of President Trump, that's it. That is a an arg. The argument you make is one that I think is very powerful. 
Well, thank you. No, I, I you know, I, again, I'm, I'm for more healthcare. I'm a physician myself, and I, and I think, you know, the system we have now is unconscionable in many ways. But I think that the, the, the points I'm, I'm trying to make in those passages are really that I think that there's a, an important caveat. I think that a lot of progressives have fallen into the trap of basically saying, oh, well, the minute people see how Medicare for all would benefit everybody, of course they'll be converted because it gives them. It gives them health care. And we just learned that lesson, <laughs> you know, pretty mm-hmm. recently ago with the Affordable Care Act, that actually just giving people health care doesn't mean they're going to jump on board your ship because there are these profound valences about what government sponsored health care means that aren't just about whether or not you go to the doctor or how much you pay for it. It actually has to do with race and who whose life is worth insuring in the first place. And there's a huge history of, uh, of this, you know, going back to attempts to desegregate, for example, southern um, southern hospitals and mm-hmm. attempts to create other versions of national health care. And so I guess the point I'm trying to make is Medicare for all is not enough if you don't also come up with a strategy for addressing race uh, and racial tensions. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. But the other part, of course, is that I interviewed and we did on the project a lot of African-American um, citizens in the South who felt like they had worked very hard to attain their Affordable Care Act benefits, and they were very supportive of President Obama and everything that represented. And even though Medicare for All wouldn't be a huge jump from what they have now, the idea that basically people people fought to obtain these these, you know, competitive insurance marketplace benefits or, or Medicaid expansion benefits. So I, I, I don't think that overthrowing the Affordable Care Act would, would be a huge sell in, in those populations without, uh, without some framing also. And so I, mm-hmm. I think the point I'm trying to make is that it's, I, I think there's a logical leap of, you know, 15 steps you have to take to get there that have to do not so much with the healthcare economics, but with, with you know, race and racial tensions and racial anxieties in, in this country. And I, I haven't heard that latter debate. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about health care, and that part of the conversation in your book is focused on Tennessee and its attempts to expand health care under the Affordable Care Act. You also could spe- I could I just say one more thing about Tennessee though before we go on if that's okay sure. um, because I think it's important to note also one other point that I forgot to make is also that the Affordable Care Act was hugely effective right and so look what just happened in the election in Kentucky very recently so p- another part of the analysis in this section of the book was comparing Tennessee which did not expand Medicaid and did not create competitive marketplaces with Kentucky and there's a lot of data in the book that basically shows that you know relatively similar populations and socioeconomic levels. But Kentucky saw very dramatic, very dramatic improvements, not just in health and longevity, but people paid less for medications. They ended up having fewer medical bankruptcies, went for more routine office visits. And so I think the the other part of the issue that I haven't heard is also, I mean, I hope people can see in the Kentucky, Tennessee comparison part of the book, that, that people started to like the Affordable Care Act. And that's, I think that's what we started to see in this election in, in Kentucky pretty recently. So I, I think that's another important point to make is that the Affordable Care Act, in, in some ways, even though it was kind of the first version of a technology that and a program that would have had to have been continually improved, and, it, and that didn't happen. But the Affordable Care Act was very effective, particularly in the southern states that were brave enough to try it. Mm-hmm. So that's healthcare in Tennessee. To my mind, the most startling section is the first section, and that is gun control and Missouri. And you write, as gun laws were liberalized in Missouri, gun deaths spiked among white people. This was because white Missourians dominated injuries and deaths via gun-related suicides, 
partner violence and accidental shootings and in ways that outpaced African-American gun deaths from homicides. Please walk us through how liberalization of gun laws in Missouri, which were done ostensibly to allow people to protect themselves from some unseen marauding hordes of people, suddenly made being a white male a risk factor for gun deaths, or in like, this case, suicide. Well, that, I think that's that basically <laughs> summarizes the point very well. Oh, I mean, okay. Missouri, Missouri was such a was such an important part of the research because the important thing about th- thinking about Missouri is that before about two thousand and eight, Missouri was a state that had a long history of gun ownership and hunting and and a particular form of gun rights. Um, but there were laws on the books that basically said in order to get a gun or to carry a gun in public, um, you need to do things like get a permit, and what a permit involved is usually going to the sheriff's office for three minutes or less. And just, you know, the question was, are you a wanted felon on the loose or something like that? It was not very extensive. But there were laws and processes that when you bought a gun at the point of purchase, you know, there were there was a process of basically saying, should this person own a gun? And most people bought a gun. It wasn't a big deal. But in 2008, there was a kind of the beginning of a kind of NRA takeover of, of state politics fueled by, of course, GOP politicians who overturned pretty much every gun law on the books. So all of a sudden there was open carry and, you know, concealed carry, campus carry, park carry, bar carry, every kind of carry you can think of. And and Missouri really became, uh, the New York Times called it the shoot me state in a way, this idea that basically Missouri went from a state that had kind of centrist gun laws to one where all of a sudden it was quite easy to to get a gun and to carry a gun. And a lot of people lauded this as an expansion of gun rights, of patriotism, of freedom and liberty. And all, as this was happening, there were quotes from Wayne LaPierre on down basically saying, this is your right to protect your family, as LaPierre put it, from, you know, gangbangers and carjackers and other kinds of racialized others. And I just started to look at the data, and it turned out that as guns flooded into Missouri— there was a rise in black-on-black shooting, for sure, uh, but the numbers were not— relatively dramatic. It was about 40 or 50 uh, shootings a year, which every loss, you know, every life lost is a a tragedy. But the real drivers of the dramatic rise in gun death in Missouri were white male suicides, which literally spiked through the roof. I mean, for the five years after this, Missouri became one of the top three states in the nation out of the blue for for white male gun suicide. And so in the book, I really talk about this, this this disconnect between guns that were literally being sold as kind of symbols of freedom and and patriotism and but also about like protecting yourselves against you know Willie Horton who might come in your window on one hand and this idea that nobody was talking about really the epidemic of of gun suicide which was a very very complicated story uh, really complicated because the risk factor wasn't depression. It, it wasn't having seen a psychiatrist. It wasn't all the usual things that you would think of with, with gun suicide. It was um, a, a particular kind of gun suicide that was, you know, the main risk factors were, you know, I show this statistically, do you own a gun? Have you um, had a recent crisis? And, and white Americans were about 90 percent of the victims here. In fact, you write, in reality, white men in Missouri outpaced everybody else and at rates that far exceeded the percentages of actual white men in the state. In 2015, white men comprised roughly 40 percent of the population of Missouri, but were victims of nearly 80 percent of gun suicides. You start out the conversation 
on gun control in, in Missouri by talking about the quote unquote man card. You were talking about how you know the gun symbolizes freedom and patriotism, but it also is wrapped up in masculinity and race. And how does the man card play into that? Well, the man card is is a very important advertising campaign, one of several I talk about in the book that basically sell guns. I mean, it's important to maybe just step back and say that there's been a transformation in the United States about why people feel like they own guns in the first place. Um, If you look back to Pew public opinion polls, for example, from 20 years ago, people would and the great majority of people would own guns because of hunting. Uh, You know, I need I needed to go hunting. There's a family tradition of hunting. And very few people felt like they needed a gun for or self, you know, protection from other people. I mean, some people did, but but that was a, a, a minority by far. And over the past couple of decades, we've seen a dramatic shift where now the dramatic majority of people who own guns say that I need it for self-protection, for identity, for, you know, all these factors we've been talking about. And so there's been this this dramatic shift in why people own guns in the first place. And what I try to show in the book is that that transformation was catalyzed by a number of factors, you know, laws and the Supreme Court. But in terms of these advertisements, they were bas- they basically, if you look at the NRA magazines, for example, stopped selling guns as like, you know, shoot a rabbit for dinner, (laughs) that kind of thing. And it was much more, this is your identity and very often coded identity as, as a, as a white male. And it was quite explicit in a bunch of the ads. And I think one of the most prominent ones was an ad for the um, Bushmaster, an AR-15 rifle that they were selling that basically said, you know, you males are under attack because of political correctness. And they use the words like, you know, (laughs) tofu and (laughs) liberals and all these kind of things. Probably avocado toast. Yeah, probably in there. <laughs> All the good stuff. But uh, but it, it basically said, uh, "Do you want to get your man card back?" And so they, they it was this ad campaign that basically asked men to you know certify their uh, their manness by all of these kind of questions, and then by the you know, it gave you a, a card when you bought the bought this this semi-automatic weapon, and this card symbolized you know the, the ad said, "Continue your." consider your man card reissued. And it, it basically said not just that your man card was reissued, but it used the word privilege uh, with all the rights and privileges duly afforded, I think was the text. And so it was, it was basically associating, you know, the, the, the return of male, obviously male privilege um, and in historical language, you know, this language had been used predominantly for, for white men um, with owning an, an AR-15. Now, this mm-hmm. ad was at the center of a lot of controversy because it turned out after the ad ran, it was also the gun that um, that a number of high-profile mass shooters, including Adam Lanza, used. Um, and so they, they, they had to withdraw the ad, I think, and it's at the center of a, a legal case right now. But what I do in the book is I just, I just basically unta- um, unpack the language of that advertisement and show how what's being sold is a gun as a marker of a a kind of threatened masculinity that's being returned, a kind of privilege being returned, literally using the language of the ad, Mm -hmm. um, through through this symbol of the semi-automatic weapon. And I just just track that through and talk about what what does that mean. Right. And the other thing that you do, Jonathan, is that you you unpack the symbolism of that ad, but you also walk the reader through the history of gun ownership in the country writ large and who could own guns and who could own guns is all wrapped up, as with everything, in race. 
there was a concerted effort to keep guns out of the hands of African-Americans, particularly after slavery. Right. In, in a way, and, and what, when I just mentioned that I think the word privileges was a racially coded term, that's exactly what I mean, that there's about a 200-year history in this country of uh, basically affording the right to carry a weapon in public to white Americans, often white men, and denying it to everyone else, particularly African Americans. And that goes back even to pre-colonial times when landowners uh, could carry muskets and they let their white workers carry muskets in order to quell rebellions, as they put it, from Negroes and, and Indians. And that went all the way through, of course, in, in slavery, um, um, you know, the, the debates about who could carry a gun were often, very often aligned with race and particularly in the period after the Civil War. Everything from John Brown's raid to Ku Klux Klan raids to other, you know, the aftermath of um, Nat Turner, all these factors were all about trying to disarm African-Americans and show that basically carrying a gun in public was a white prerogative. And what I do in that section of the book is basically track that history up through to the present day mm -hmm. where um, even though ostensibly you would think that the Second Amendment would apply to everyone, I use that history to show how, for, for example, open carry, white, white uh, open carry uh, people are seen as patriots who can walk through Walmart or go to um, Starbucks. But I show all these examples of African-American men usually who have permits and just go to buy something at the store, end up getting tackled or shot. And so this, I, this idea of, who, of, of, you know, carrying a gun being a racial prerogative. We have modern day examples. Philando Castile in Minnesota had a license for open carry, told the police officer that he was reaching for the permit and that he had a, had a gun and he got killed. And you have a, an example of a... Um, of a, a white man who was walking in a Walmart with a, a might have been a semi-automatic weapon. He had a weapon openly carrying it in this Walmart and he got out alive. And I'm thinking about the black man in the Walmart who was carrying a toy gun that looked like an assault rifle. Someone called the cops. The cops come in and he's killed. Mm -hmm. No, there's so many stories like that. And and again, it's a fine line right? because I'm not arguing in the book that I think everybody should carry a weapon. I think no, we you absolutely are not doing too many, that. <laughs> too many guns. You know, and this goes back to Malcolm X and Robert Williams of the NAACP who wrote a book called Negroes with Guns, this idea that basically who does the Second Amendment apply to? And on paper, it basically is not racially coded language. But in practice, I have a lot of examples in the book and many that I've accumulated since of, of basically white men. There, there's a story in the book, for example, about a man in Atlanta who just walks around at a youth a youth baseball game holding his AR-15 over his head and screaming, here's my gun and there's nothing you can do about it. And all the parents and the baseball players are hiding in the dugout. They're terrified. And the police come and they're like, hey, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. How is that not harassment? Yeah, I, mean, I know. But it's it's protected in, in, in terms of, you know, particular kind of carry laws. Um, so there's a racial politics to, to how this right. plays out, because I kept thinking, you know, try that as a non-white man and see how far how far you can. I think we know the answer to that. And I want to talk to you because you you sort of alluding to the, the castle doctrine that I want to talk to you in a little bit. But I do want to get to the third area that you focus in on in the book, and that's tax cuts and the state of Kansas and how Kansas. Kansas used to have a great reputation for its schools. People would move to Kansas to go to Kansas schools. And then 
Governor Brownback, Sam Brownback becomes the governor, slashes taxes, and all hell breaks loose. You you write early budget cuts overwhelmingly impacted schools in low-income minority districts, but these initial cuts were not enough to fill the gaping holes in state budgets. Soon, as a thoughtful Kansas state legislator told me, quote, the fire that we set in the fields burned all the way up to the home. <laughs> I mean, that was that was one of these, you know, when you do a research like this and every moment, every, you know, you have moments where people say things that are just so clear, so clear. And I think that was really one of those moments where I was interviewing someone and it was like this fantasy that I think a lot of legislators and, and conservative voters and, and, you know, parents even who sent their kids to public schools in Kansas had that we could do things that were similar to healthcare, going to penalize people who are taking from the system in an undeserving way. And schools was a very powerful marker of that. I mean, as you mentioned, Kansas, I'm from Kansas City, and I kind of saw this happening as I was growing up. Kansas, people would move to Kansas because they always had a, a, a because Kansas always had a top 10 public school system. And every metric you can think of, fourth and eighth grade reading and, and math, um, high school graduation rates, all these things were phenomenal for a public school system in Kansas. And part of the reason Kansas was so strong was because of changes that the state had made, literally investing in the public school system in the aftermath of the Brown versus Board of Education decision in the 1950s. And Kansas were very proud of their public schools. And then along comes Brownback, kind of fueled by a kind of, you know, Koch Brothers, libertarian, conservative Republican ethos of austerity in times of prosperity. And and he started cutting everything. But the biggest cuts were to the famous Kansas school system. And I think initially when I talked to people, they were like, oh, it's not going to affect us that much. And I found some pretty interesting kind of urban myths uh, from parents I would talk to that, oh, we're just penalizing the minority districts because they're using all the tax dollars. People told me this um, on party buses. Yeah, I saw <laughs> um, that. Did you challenge any of these people? Yeah, I did. Like, hey, where's your evidence for the party bus? <laughs> well, it's funny because people kept telling me that the black school districts are wasting money on these party buses. And so I called the I called the black school districts and I said, hey, do, do you guys have any party buses? And they would be like, you know, we hardly have money for textbooks. Like, what are you talking about? You know, we can barely get, you know, lunches for the students. And so there was this kind of urban myth going around of kind of profligate minority districts that I think fueled people's rationale about what was being cut. But unfortunately, just like healthcare, we're all connected, right? So the minute you start taking money away from the school system in one area, the entire system starts to suffer. And that's certainly what happened in Kansas, which is that the first effects were seen in minority and low-income districts. But then the, the it just started to be system-wide. So all of a sudden, you know, everybody's dropout rates started to increase. Everybody's graduation rates started to go down. And Kansas, like Tennessee, is a predominantly white state. And so the people who were getting hit by this this politics the most um, were, were white students. They had by far the biggest dropout rates, by far the biggest drops in competence, competency exams. And when that started happening, it, I think for many Kansans, it was a bridge too far. So that was when people started saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, what are we doing here? So I think when, when the issue started to hit home, all of a sudden there was a massive mobilization and people who had been supporters of, of Brownback's policies started to turn. And, and the Kansas story I show, you know, for better or worse, here's an example of, of a point where people really started to see how the policies affected them 
in part, but also started to get a broader sense. So I interview a lot of legislators and, and, and school district people who basically say, you know, what we realize is that we have a social responsibility um, for something like a school district to to make to make this system better for everyone. And so Kansas voted in centrist Republicans, and it's still having that debate right now. And in fact, you write that the Kansas experiment with Brownback is something that President Trump is trying to do on the national level. I get that right? Well, I mean, the scary thing about all the examples in in my book are that in a in a different planet other than ours, <laughs> you might think these are examples of what not to do, right? Tennessee blocked health care reform with no backup plan. And people started dying. Missouri started to give it, everybody could get a gun. And what happened? Injury and death rates skyrocketed. All these kinds of suicide, partner violence, police shooting, et cetera. Kansas cut its schools and people started to really suffer. And so in a, re, in a different universe, you would think, well, gosh, let's find a model that worked somewhere else and try to nationalize that, right? I mean, New York, for example, for New York is 47th in the out of 50 states in terms of gun injury and death in many categories. Let's think about what New York's doing and maybe keep people safer or California has a better school system. Uh, other states and other countries obviously have better healthcare systems. And so the, in, in fact, what we see is the opposite, right? Which is that all of the policies I talk about in these Southern states are ones that the Trump administration has tried to nationalize. And so um, this idea of cutting away the public school system became one of the core markers of the kind of many of these DeVos initiatives, which are taking money out of the common pool of, of public schools. Of course, we know what happened with health care and guns. So in, in a way, the, these states become kind of canaries in the coal mine, mm-hmm. I think, for, 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 for the nationalization of of politics and policies that have been very toxic at state levels. So you, in addition to talking about taxes in Kansas and guns in Missouri and health care in Tennessee, you do throughout talk a lot about just overall about race and how we talk about it or don't talk about it or the mistakes we make. And I'm going to put you and Toni Morrison in the same within the same question. Oh, my God. I mean, (laughs) you have a quote from Toni Morrison where where she says, to restore whiteness to its former status as a marker of national identity, a number of white Americans are sacrificing themselves. And that gets to the overarching argument in your book. And now here's something that you write that I think a lot of people either don't get or understand or had not even realized, and you write, my findings in this book suggest that we make a wrong turn when we try to address racism mainly as a disorder of people's brains or attitudes or try to fix the problem simply by attempting to sensitize people or change their minds. Right. I mean, it's 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 such a obviously complicated issue. And I'm just, first of all, honored to be part of the conversation we're having as a country about this. And I I would say I come down um, in in a couple of ways. I mean, you know, I I tried very hard in my book to be respectful of the people that I was interviewing. And I didn't want to pathologize anybody at all based on their identity. I, I tried to judge people based on their deeds, not on the category that I put them into. And and I think it's important to note that, you know, there are different ways to be white in this country. And so, unfortunately, right now, President Trump has co-opted a particular narrative of whiteness that is whiteness under attack and white, white victimhood and all these factors. And, and from that, I, I feel has 
done all of these things that are counter to the interests of our our nation, including to to many people who are ostensibly his supporters. And so to push back on that, part of what I argue is that we have to articulate a different model of whiteness. Um, In other words, it's the responsibility of white America if there is such a thing. And of course, that's many things. You know, white America has not often had to define itself, right, because it's the invisible norm or the control group. Um, But right now, if you don't agree with the model of whiteness that President Trump is articulating, it's incumbent to articulate um, a different model of whiteness. And just to be clear, I don't think that means that people need to apologize for who they are. I don't think that that means that, you know, that anybody is given any particular status. But I will say that part of the argument of my book is that the formulation of whiteness that we're latching onto is not really working out very well for white people either. And so I think part of the issue is not to deconstruct anybody, but to say that we've gotten ourselves into this position where the formulation of whiteness that we have on one hand is incredibly violent toward other people. And also it's killing white people too. And so wouldn't it be great to step back? And at the end of the book, I I give some examples of how I think that might happen, you know, but I think there's so much evidence about how, for example, societies where more people can advance or better and healthier societies where it's easier for people to get to work, communities and economies do better, businesses that that have the most divergent viewpoints and diverse viewpoints end up being more productive and creative because different people bring different things to the table. And so in a way, you know, I, I, I guess part of the issue is how does this moment where we're at a crisis, we're at a crisis of whiteness right now, among other things, how can we use this to step back and create a better formulation that's more, more horizontal and distributive that works better for everybody, including white Americans? When you were talking about President Trump and you know the the form of whiteness that he is that he is pushing, and that you say this is a formulation of of whiteness that is incredibly incredibly violent towards other people, and that gets to the last chapter in your your book. The last thought is all about the castle doctrine, and for so, for some listeners that might sound familiar because we became familiar with that term as a result of the shooting of of Trayvon Martin in Florida, where that was sort of, well, that was the stand your ground ground law, but it's all part of the castle doctrine that um, you have a right to defend defend yourself and defend your home. And you use the example, a hyper-extreme example of castle doctrine that played out in Missouri with a young woman who somehow got a gun and ended up killing herself and and correct me if i'm wrong and retell the story but i do think the castle doctrine ended up not just being able to defend your home but being able to defend yourself wherever you are even in your car Right. And so the story I told to end the book was a story that happened while the Ferguson protests were taking place in, in Missouri about a, 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 a young woman from Ferguson who was a bartender um, who basically had not been a gun owner before. And then there was all of this, quote unquote, racial tension at the time. And she said, I'm going to get a gun to get ready for Ferguson, which was a comment that was open to a lot of interpretation after about what she meant. But basically, Bought, bought a gun and was driving around in the streets. She was the passenger in a car, kind of waving this gun around, saying she was getting ready for Ferguson. The car ended up 
um, tragically rear-ending another car. The gun at that time was pointed at her head, and very tragically, she she lost her life at at her by her own hand. And so the story I tell is why why was there a gun in that car in the first place? And part of the issue was about this idea that basically, as as the framework goes, a man's home is his castle, which usually, initially, if you think about like the Heller decision from 2008, for people who are familiar with it, meant you can keep a gun in your house to protect yourself against intruders. But what we've seen is this logic of protecting yourself against others and often against racial others has been led to the expansion of this so-called castle doctrine so that people can carry guns. Uh, basically, the person themselves becomes becomes the castle. And so you can take a gun in your car. You can take a gun if you're George Zimmerman just walking around. And, and so this idea of basically this, this notion of whiteness as something that needs to be defended by a castle against other people was one that I really tried to interrogate in the book and basically say, you know, what, what is that? mean? What message does that send? And and who are, who are the victims? Well, the victims obviously are people like Trayvon Martin, and there's a lot of literature uh, that shows, you know, who gets shot by stand-your-ground uh, laws, um, and it's it's mostly um, young black men. Um, but but it's also a risk to just the people who are carrying the guns, right, that they feel like they have to be on guard all the time. And so part of the issue is I felt like this was a powerful metaphor for the kind of America that people are trying to build that is protected and encastled and not collaborative um, in a way that's very racialized. And, and the hope in, in, the, in using that story is, in, in the conclusion, I turned toward other models that we could be building that are not the castle doctrine. They're the, they're the um, drawbridge doctrine or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, but in other words, like, let's, let's, let's work backwards from this because building castles is, is just going to kill us all. Jonathan, let me end our conversation with this question. In politics, and particularly democratic politics, as I said earlier, there's a, a lot of focus on reaching out to those forgotten voters, read white voters who may have voted twice for President Obama and then voted for President Trump. And I keep thinking, does it even make sense for the Democratic Party to reach out to those voters? Are they even reachable. That's what my thinking is. And in reading your book, the one question that keeps coming to mind, especially in our conversation, is given everything that you've written about and all these questions that I've asked you, and in the dangerous time, at least to the way it feels to me that we are in this country, are you hopeful? And are you hopeful that we can get past this very turbulent time that we're in to a, to a point where, at a minimum, we start to acknowledge the role that race and white supremacy plays in just about everything that we do in this country as Americans? Well, it's it's funny, but as a researcher, I feel like all of those things are possible, given the fact that I've been working on this project for quite some time now and doing a follow-up project now. I think it's important to note that many of the people I spoke with were not crazy. They were not 
completely uneducated. They, they often knew exactly what they were talking about, you know, more so than many of my liberal friends in New York about the Affordable Care Act, for example. <laughs> um, and, and, and so, you know, I think it's important to note that I, I feel like there's a lot of stereotyping on all sides. But one of the stereotypes was that, you know, people were the Beverly Hillbillies or something like that. And, and I, I think that's, that's very unfortunate, right, because the people I talk to and recount their stories in the book are making calculated decisions that are not crazy, right? Some people told me, I know I'm suffering from this policy, but what I really care about is the long game of politics. I care about, you know, not having abortion in this country, which whether or not you agree with it, at least it was a strategy. Some people felt like they'd been put in a bucket of being deplorable by the Democrats and they had no other place to turn. And and I think we've seen recent elections in places like, you know, Louisiana and Kentucky, where people, I mean, I think people are making reasoned decisions. And so I, it, 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 it's hard for me because I think that there are two ways to argue that question, right? On one hand, I really do think that it would not cost the Democrats to reach out. Uh, I, I think it's a big mistake to give up uh, and say that people are too far gone. Um, I, I think that um, if you can stay true to your ideals and your policies and still acknowledge the fact that people like the people I talk to in the book are I mean, honestly, genuinely suffering. I mean, read the gun chapter of the book, and and it, it's it's quite powerful. And so, on one hand, I I think that there needs to be some kind of acknowledgement of that. And I think, for example, you can see now President Trump is reaching out to Black and Latino voters. You, Jonathan, have written about this. Oh and, yeah. And 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 I think that's a very important strategy. Whether or not he gets the votes, it shows that he's trying to create a coalition for everyone. Now, I don't, I don't think it's going to win in votes, but I still think it's an important strategy. And I think the Democrats need a strategy like that. And on the flip side, right, of course, I think it's important to note that, you know, white suffering is is just one form of suffering. And so to think really very, very, very deeply about how can we craft a democratic message that acknowledges uh, and reaches out to people and tries to address these issues, but also acknowledges, as I mentioned in the book, kind of the violence that's being done in in the name of the formulation of whiteness. Jonathan Metzl, author of Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And you're also the director of Vanderbilt University's Center for Medicine, Health and Society. Thank you very, very much for being on the podcast and for writing your book. It's been my honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.